Hello and welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old, where we seek to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're talking about Shane Karras' cult classic, time travel, mind bender, primer. Tom, this movie is kind of a favorite of mine. I got really into this movie as a teenager and watched it a bunch of times when I was younger. I haven't revisited it in a number of years, so this was kind of fun to go back to. What is your experience with this movie, and did you also obsessively watch it at one point? Mm, Not really. I think I saw it maybe once or twice. I remember, as many others, being fascinated by the puzzle it presented, but it also felt... Ultimately, even when I looked up different analyses, diagrams, and other visual aids to help me make sense of what is actually going on, it still felt impenetrable to some extent. Watching it now, however, there's it, it's fun to revisit it and look at it with my with a now more experienced eye. I guess I still can say yeah. that I. I was able to make much more sense out of it. I actually rewatched it twice for this episode. Once I just put it on again and watched it without doing too much research beforehand. And then after that first viewing, I looked at some YouTube videos that explained the plot. I looked, uh, I rewatched it again with an audio commentary. I looked at all the graphs and it does make more sense to me now. It's a movie that's almost designed to not be understood to some extent. It, it like yes. it's deliberately complex, but not in a way that it, it doesn't feel like you're there's pieces of the puzzle and you put them together and then you have this complete picture. It feels like there's deliberate pieces that are being left out so that it kind of makes the discussion about the movie everlasting. And I guess that's a good quality of it because it's still a movie that attracts significant audiences today or I, I still believe there's like a lot of people who are fascinated by the movie and who are just discovering it now even though by now it's almost 20 years old and but the reason I'm I think I'm mostly still fascinated by it is because it's such a or it proves especially now that so much time has passed it proves that you can make this very low budget technically not the best movie uh, in terms of presentation and still make an everlasting impact on an audience and still have people talking about your work uh, twenty, almost 20 years later. And that to me is does kind of form a testament to the power of filmmaking and especially also low-budget uh, independent filmmaking. In that sense, I still find it very aspirational and very inspiring as to what can be achieved with what is essentially very little. Yeah, uh, It really is just the story and because, yeah, other than that, the movie, the movie doesn't have much going for it in terms of, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, let's say, cinematography. The uh, You know, there's a lot of out-of-focus shots. There's uh, The lighting isn't isn't great. There's bad audio. I, I didn't notice it at first, but apparently they had to redub every line of dialogue. And once you know that, it it is kind of noticeable. But, but yeah, somehow that the movie shows that you don't... All those are elements. They're not... They're good to have a in your movie, but they're not necessary to make a, make a story that, uh, that lasts, that makes an impact. And so, yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah. one of the things I'm, uh, excited to dive into more. 
Yeah. It's a movie that's fascinating on quite a few levels, I think, you know, as a movie, as a puzzle, all the things you you mentioned. But for me personally, it's kind of impossible to detach like my enjoyment of this movie as a movie from what you're talking about, which is kind of what it represented to me, I think, at the time mm. I came across it, which was it made filmmaking to some extent feel accessible to me at the time as a teenager who didn't have hopes of like going to an expensive film school and having access to all this equipment and getting funding for a movie. Here was a guy who didn't come from a Hollywood background who had mm -hmm. the budget for this film, I think is reportedly somewhere around like $5,000 or something like that. Yeah, I think it was 7000 but still yeah, yeah, extremely cheap. Yeah. Extremely cheap. And and that shows in a lot of ways, like you already mentioned, it, it has this very lo-fi kind of quality to it. But mm -hmm. there's an element of it that shines through that, that engages me, engaged a certain audience and makes it, I think, even very watchable today. I don't know, you know, it might be nostalgia to a certain degree, but to me, mm -hmm. a lot of those rougher edges that mm -hmm. this film has kind of add to yeah. this feeling that it has of being almost like an artifact. Like I think there's I one thing I thought about this time watching it that I didn't really in the past was how it kind of experiential it is. Like you the opening at the beginning with the voiceover that's recorded and it's kind of this low there's an aspect of this film that feels like you found a piece of something that is very almost documentarian or natural. Mm -hmm. There's a naturalism to it. Yeah. And that rough quality kind of fits in with the aesthetic of these guys in their garage yep. just kind of like piecing together something. Yeah, it's also mirrored by the the low-tech visuals of the yes. time machine itself that they end up building. Right. It's all very yeah. duct taped together and yeah. Yeah, it's kind of amateurish in an interesting way. Yes. So there's there's a sense in which like those things really work for me. And there's valid criticisms mm -hmm. of this movie. And I think, you know, one of those being, I think the whole trajectory of Shane Carruth's career, he kind of came out of nowhere. He did this movie. He did Upstream Color after this, which we're going to talk about as a bonus episode. Uh, so we're talking about Primer here, and then we'll discuss upstream color as a bonus episode for our patrons and nebula listeners and you'll be able to listen to that this month so uh, mm -hmm. if you're interested in that go check that out and in that episode we'll probably discuss kind of the trajectory of shane cruz's career as a whole and you know he kind of came out of nowhere and then a little bit ran aground in hollywood yeah. and so there's a little bit of sadness to that story i think but mm -hmm. this movie for me was that the way I found it, I just kind of stumbled across this movie on YouTube. Somebody had like pirated oh, yeah. it and uploaded <laughs> it to YouTube. Somebody linked to it and was like, this is a crazy movie. And it was like one in the morning. I was like staying up late studying for, you know, a test or something, procrastinating at one in the morning when I was <laughs> already like <laughs> supposed to be doing other stuff. And instead, I just like was like, oh, this is weird. I clicked on that movie, not n clicked on Primer on YouTube, not intending to like watch an entire movie and just immediately got sucked in an hour and a half later. I was like, what did I just watch? Like, what was that thing that kind of sparked this love affair with 
putting together this puzzle, which I think is I think is probably what a lot of people were enticed by with this movie, mm, yeah. and which is attached to something that maybe we can talk a little bit about, which is kind of, I think, this era of like 2004 through maybe the rest of that decade towards 2010, it felt like with internet communities, I think maybe was fueling a lot of it, like puzzle movies and like Christopher mm. Nolan, Memento, and like all of a sudden became this very enticing, they kind of grew a little bit of a community around them. And I don't know if that had to do with the fact that like you could watch Primer and then immediately mm, go online yeah, yeah. and look at the charts and diagrams of people like trying to figure out like what was actually going on in this film. So anyway, sorry, I spewed out uh, several different <laughs> things there. It's funny that you mentioned Nolan, Nolan because I also thought of him because he made, following his first feature film, only like a couple of years before Shane did. And it's, in many ways you can, it almost feels like Shane Gareth could have been another Nolan. They could have been on the same trajectory. They both had very beloved independent features. And then Nolan slowly made his way or found his place in the more in the studio system, whereas Shane was more, uh, or at least he seemed to have been more uh, invested in his own vision and wanting to work outside of Hollywood, which ultimately yeah. ended up casting him arguably. But yeah, we'll get more into that in the episode on Upstream Color. One thing I do want to add about the presentation and the cinematography is that I, I remember the movie looking very low budget. And as I said uh, earlier, it's still, you know, there's clear flaws in the technicalities of it. But it, I was surprised at it has quite a bit going for it as well in terms of variation. You know, there's yeah, uh, there's just simple dinner scenes and there's then there's multiple angles and dolly shots and then it goes back into handheld and there's close-ups. There's a lot of momentum and rhythm in the storytelling and in the editing and in the in the way shots are framed. And it's visually bore, but it's not boring. At least it's bore yeah, in the yeah. sense, you know, it's overlit or underlit or the colors right. don't match up or but it's not like he, he does play around. There, there there is a sense of energy there that draws you in, at least at first, even though you don't understand what's going on, because I the first 15 minutes or so of the movie, it's basically them just rambling jargon to each other that we as the viewers, or at least uh, I'm not able to make much sense of. So so that's something that I think might get overshadowed by the other, um, you know, the, the, the other, the lesser qualities of the presentation that it, there is some, you know, it, it's it's like a little diamond in the rough, I think, in that sense yeah, that, yeah. that it's not, uh, we shouldn't un underestimate that the movie does have something going for it in visual terms that uh, even though it might not appear to look like that at, uh, at first glance, but yeah. There's a lot of inventive composition. There's mm -hmm. like dolly shots that kind of are used as reveals or for emphasis of certain things. One of my favorite elements of the film is just that opening sequence of, I mean, we haven't really talked what the film is about besides mentioning time travel, but it's about these mm -hmm. four guys who work together kind of in a garage. They're engineers. We don't really get much information because it's all very, you know, like you said, they're speaking in jargon. It's not, there's not a lot of exposition. No, very naturalistic. Yes, but mm -hmm. we see them kind of, they're running some kind of company where they create computer parts or they're working on various projects, kind of trying to get a startup off the ground. Two of them out of the four kind of accidentally stumble. They're trying to build, I believe, like some type of 
anti-gravity machine like yeah. trying to build something, something that like, like yeah. that reduces the weight of an object using a magnetic field in doing so they accidentally stumble across a time travel machine and the way this is revealed to us is one of the characters has discovered the time travel machine already and is kind of walking the other character through the process of how he figured out what was going on and that whole sequence i love so much it's a great kind of masterclass in how to like pull off a, mm -hmm. a reveal and exposition and explain all the technical elements of what's happening in this movie and what they're doing in a way that feels like you're discovering it as the viewer instead of just like the filmmakers like okay now I'm going to sit you down and explain to you all the the technical stuff for this movie. But there's a great moment within that to tie this into like the cinematography and that kind of stuff. There's a great moment within that where they go to the storage place and mm -hmm. Abe is kind of walking Aaron through how he discovered the time travel. And they're already talking about how they would build a, a one that's big enough to hold a human and where they would keep that. And Aaron kind of realizes like, oh, we could use a, you know, you would need somewhere that's climate controlled and, and safe and like all these things. <laughs> and as he's mentioning that the camera's like dollying around and slowly revealing behind yeah. them that they're they're sitting in this field, you know, with with this like storage facility in the background. And so there's elements like that where the filmmaking and the cinematography mm -hmm. is being used to reveal elements of the yeah. story. I wonder if that shot was supposed to be unintentional supposed to be funny or if it was in unintentionally funny that they were having that conversation and then the camera pans to a building with these big letters that assess exactly what they need right yes <laughs> <laughs> no i think there is there's a little bit of a sense of humor in that mm -hmm. in that moment too but yeah no I, I i agree with what you're saying i think it's it's rough around the edges in certain aspects mm -hmm. but that's what i meant by it. there's something that shines through here where yeah. editing or or pieces of like technically it's rougher, but artistically, where it's able to, it's doing a lot. So yeah, and there's there's a lot of montages and lots of different settings. Also, there's one scene where they kind of randomly like that pouring gas in the car, or, or and then they're like, then they're somewhere else, and then they're talking in this building, yeah. and then they're sitting outside. So yeah, there's there is there is some attention there in insofar as he probably has considered like how do i make this more appealing and not how do i draw people in without the conventional tools of like clear or more easy to grasp dialogue because he you know he probably knew that was wasn't going to be there and unconventional plotting because that's also thrown out the window <laughs> as the movie progresses it felt like he did consider like okay i'm gonna need some element that keeps viewers hooked if everything else becomes too alienating or too complicated yeah. to stay connected to and I think that he, yeah, he pulled that off pretty well in uh, with the means that he had. There's one shot, for example, that I really loved. It's where they, I think it's Abe is demonstrating his magnetic machine for the first time, and then the camera, he's he's gonna throw some stuff on it. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It looks like like some small particles. Oh, it's like paper clippings from like a hole punch. Oh yeah, I think is what it is. And so yeah. he, you see that the cameras kind of banning as he walks toward the machine but then instead of showing the actual action the view gets obscured by this uh, monitor this tv monitor and there we see the action performed but i think there it might have been some visual effect because that's why you see this the paper clippings or whatever it was they they're kind of floating it's 
it, it looks like something that would have been hard, if not impossible, to achieve practically. So there's a nice bit of yeah. cinematic trickery there in conveying that effect without having to actually perform it. Yeah, there's yeah. A, just a lot of these nice little details going on that make the movie also, for, at least for me, also worth to to revisit. Yeah. As far as, you know, this is, this is a movie that not everybody loves. It has like a 6.8 on IMDb. There's... Mm-hmm. There's, I think some people don't connect with it. And yeah. I think if I see a validity, I love it, but I can see how some people have, let's say one of the criticisms that's been leveled against it is that it doesn't have a lot of emotion or it's difficult to connect with these characters. Mm-hmm. And I can kind of see that, I think in its naturalism, it's, and Shane Carruth, one of the reasons he acted in it himself and he got non-actors involved i think some of that was budgetary but but also i remember reading about him not being able to find people who would deliver the dialogue with the naturalism that he wanted he wanted it to to feel Mm -hmm. like just people talking and not that's a sword that kind of cuts both ways i think there's some parts of this film where that that quality is perfect for it where it just it feels like you're watching just people talking and it in some ways it feels like the realest time like i'm like if there's any movie that depicts what actual the actual discovery of time travel would look like to me it's like primer takes Hmm. takes the boat because it's a depiction of how a lot of things get discovered which is sort of by accident just some people like who stumble across a certain thing and it's it's so naturalistic in that delivery Mm -hmm. but then once the movie gets into the territory where they're sort of dealing with the emotional implications of what they've discovered and there's like interpersonal conflict between the characters and some of those things are happening i think that the performances undersell some of that potential a little bit where yeah. you know the movie doesn't expand to fill the kind of like dramatic significance Mm -hmm. that it could if you maybe had more experienced performers in those roles where you know by the time this is getting into spoiler territory but that by the time abe and aaron kind of split up those scenes to me feel a little like emotionally not hollow but like not as impactful as Mm. maybe they could be but all that said i don't think a lot of the people who love this movie I don't think that's really what they're coming to this movie for. It's more this experience of like watching it the first time, kind of scratching your head and being like, maybe I got like 50% of that (laughs) or some percentage I understood and then revisiting it and talking about it and trying to piece together what's going on. I remember when I first watched it, having kind of no idea what was happening and i think that's a that's a pretty common experience i do think to some extent it's a movie that does require multiple viewings to really i mean you can you can get the broad strokes i think on a first viewing but there's aspects of it that unless you know the context of what's happening when you see first see certain things you won't understand what's going on uh really what's going on the first time through um so there's certain like clues or visual Mm -hmm. cues into sort of the plot that I think are are only really evident as you as you revisit it one thing I'm curious about is what your experience was with that and how you feel about 
sort of movies like this where yeah. they kind of they they kind of act more as like a fun puzzle than like a a singular experience. Mm -hmm. I agree with some of the criticisms that it's not an emotionally engaging movie. And that for me, I, I like this movie a lot, but I don't love, love it just because it's not, it tickles the brain, but it's not etched into my heart like some other movies right. <laughs> that make that more, yeah. that really make that deep impact on um, your own like emotionality. Having said that, it's also a matter of from a filmmaker or from Shane Carrot's perspective, I guess, um, that's just a matter of what kind of story do you want to tell? Yes. Um, because it's very clear that he establishes quite well that these are not characters who are going to use time travel to fix some, some, thing, some broken thing inside of themselves. You know, there's not some emotional journey that, that, that happens because of their discovery. No, their first, their instinct is just in line with their personalities as we come to know them at in first it's like okay how can we use this cleverly how can we exploit this how can we make some money and then slowly you know the paranoia and the the distrust between them grows and that kind of leads into feeds into the conflict but that's you know that's a different story from i discovered time travel and i'm going and i'm going to try to stop this great tragedy that happened yeah in my childhood or whatever you know that's it's just a different story and i think uh, you know, it's fine to do that, to make that choice, to not have a story that revolves um, around a more conventional emotional arc. But still, even if you decide to do that, I do think there's some issues with the connection that the audience has with the characters. You talked about the non-professional actors that are being used, but I think it's also, there's also an issue in the writing in the sense that it, at least to me on first viewing, and even when I rewatched it for the first time uh, last week, it somehow it wasn't clear to me like it took me a long time to to understand what the connections were between the characters at some point we see a family but and then there's another girlfriend and there's a reference to another person who's not even who doesn't end up being in the movie there's all these the kind of the social network i guess of the movie isn't as clearly or it, it isn't given priority as much as the intricacies yeah. of the time travel is and right so in that sense, even if you assume a story that doesn't have a strong emotional hook or a strong emotional character arc, it still falls a little flat to me in presenting the, the characters as they are, these more down-to-earth, I guess more, um, in some way more selfish and, and more uh, almost anti-heroes to some extent in in the sense they, they do feel more like Nolan's characters who are kind of in the moral gray-ish area and who have more selfish pursuits and who don't necessarily have an, a character arc that is going to transform them for the better. But yeah, it, it just, it, it's clear that he doesn't really seem to focus on what all this does to the characters as much as it does, or, or as much as he is focused on creating a, an interesting puzzle. Because even now, after yeah, having yeah. seen it, I think I've seen it four times in total now, but one thing that still falls very flat for me, is the actual ending. It kind of sizzles out in my experience. And that to me demonstrates that that just wasn't that strong of a, a character statement to be made at the end, beyond the, the, the simple fact that it ends sort of tragically. Um, yeah. Even because that's also the issue. By the end, you don't even know who's who anymore. It's it's become very complicated as to as to how many versions of Aaron there are at this point, how many versions of Abe, and so you're not even sure who you're connected to 
anymore, which also leads to that feeling of the movie not really having a strong ending, but just kind of stopping, yeah. I guess. This episode of Cinema of Meaning is sponsored by MUBI. MUBI is an online streaming cinema with handpicked movies from all around the world. Yeah, so this week we talked about Primer, but if you want to see Shane Carrot's other film, Upstream Color, that's also available on MUBI in the Netherlands and in some other European countries. If you're in one of those areas, you can watch that for free on MUBI with our extended 30-day free trial. Just go to MUBI.com slash Cinema of Meaning. Or if you're in the U.S. or one of the areas where Upstream Color isn't available, check out the library. They add a new film every day with an explanation of why it's worth your time. They have a bunch of great movies that I love, including one of my favorites, Lee Chong Dang's Burning in the U.S. So sign up for your free trial today and explore the wonderful library that MUBI has to offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash cinema of meaning. There's a key scene where Abe and Aaron at least to my understanding, some alternate versions of Abe and Aaron have come back and they are on their second run through. But Abe has is thwarting their original versions from ever getting in the machines. And mm -hmm. there's some allusion there to Aaron is kind of like, you're, je you're jealous of me. You, you know, you wish you had my wife and family, kind of like all of those things. And he ends up like, going off and at the very end it's insinuated that that Aaron potentially is like building his own new big you know room size time hmm. machine or whatever but that that whole emotional arc is not set up in to to your point about it mm -hmm. all being kind of underdeveloped is not set up to any there's no clue prior to that that like Abe is jealous of Aaron and like none of that is developed or seeded yeah. early on in the movie and I think you could have had a lot more emotional weight to those moments if we had seen a little bit more of that if we had like understood that there was some kind of tension between the two of them underneath everything that you know then comes to a head instead mm -hmm. that's just kind of dropped in our lap more as like oh a plot point for why they end up going their separate ways than like an actual developed yeah. character arc so i agree with with what you're saying there i do feel ape was the more developed or the better developed characters of character of the two I saw somewhere that he there was supposed to be an additional short scene that established that he was a diabetic, which would explain oh, or at least yeah. contribute to his character as someone who's very methodical and careful and who also yeah. wants to play it very safe and very carefully, which is clearly demonstrated throughout the movie. With Aaron, however, the, the guy who's played by Shane Garrett himself, it was less obvious to me what his motivations were throughout the movie there's a lot of stuff that he does that isn't revealed to us towards the end um yeah. you know sort of a there's a twist at i think around the one hour mark somewhere or towards the end where it's revealed that aaron the kind of the, the setup is that they have these boxes and they uh, can go back each day but abe has set one up before the one they go into first as a sort of fail safe so in case that uh, everything goes wrong. He has that first box that he goes back to and sort of reset everything that happened after that. And towards the end of this reveal that Aaron has discovered that box and he used it while taking with him a portable version of the time machine. And then he, yeah. he went back, built a couple of new ones. And, and so what we have been seeing from the very beginning, or I think it's, there's a clear cut where he, I think it's at the... I wrote it down at the at the 19 minute mark 
that's where you see Abe. That's just before they have the, the time machines ready. And there's the shot of Abe. It, the, the screen cuts to black and there's a shot of Abe storming out of the door into the light. And then yes. he's standing on the roof and you get that scene where they, they're talking to each other on the bench. And from there on, that's, I think, where from that moment on, that's Aaron who is, uh, or at least the way we see it first is that this is where Abe reveals to Aaron that he's built the time machine. And we get that whole sequence that you talked about where it is explained to us what the time machine is and the plot goes on from there. But as we learn at the end, that Aaron is actually a version of Aaron that's already come back to the failsafe. I tried to pay attention to it on the, the second viewing. <laughs> that's that's where, where he's always keeping the, from there from that moment, he's always wearing the earpiece because he's, earpiece, yeah. he's recorded the, the conversations and now he's listening back and kind of repeating them or uh, yeah he's just kind of playing along with uh, saying the sentences that he did on the first run and so he appears to be a pretty self-serving character you know their initial impulse mm -hmm. at least that we see ultimately i think what you're saying is and i kind of agree that we don't we don't ever really know if we see them the first time through at least aaron the first time through mm -hmm. one of the things i think this movie is really good at is kind of being experiential and keeping you inside the perspective of these characters. So mm -hmm. as things are kind of disintegrating and they're losing track of who's where and what is when, we're only seeing glimpses and pieces here and there. We never get this like God's eye view of what's actually going on. We mm -hmm. only experience it with the characters, which I like I th and I think is effective in a certain way because you have this feeling there's some talk towards the end where they talk about kind of having this fractured sense of space and they're like what they're doing as they're traveling through time is is clearly kind of messing with their ability to just sort of I, I don't remember exactly what the lines are, hmm. but it's messing with their ability to keep track of certain timelines and where they are and these things. I think they have a fractured sense of what's going on. A good example of that is when... Thomas Granger, when they realize that he's used the time machine, we never really get an explanation of like how he got there. Mm -hmm. They figure out that he used the time machine, but then they are forced to like try to reason as to how he got there. And we never find yeah. out. We, we only get from their perspective midstream. Yeah. He immediately becomes this vegetable that isn't right. capable of explaining anything. And yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we're stuck, we're stuck within that perspective and we, we don't get to see outside of that. So I think that mm -hmm. works in some way as like giving this experience of like, oh, here's what it's like for these characters. But the downside to that is that it is hard to keep track. And we, we, instead of getting this clear through line for like one Aaron and understanding mm -hmm. his desires and we're getting this, we're getting brief snapshots of all these different characters who are at different stages in their sort of like character development. Because at one point he talks about at the beginning, th there's a moment where he talks about how easy it becomes to sort of like do what's necessary to just get it done. And he's like, you're drugging yourself and locking yourself in closets and the cabinet and wh whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't get to see that like development. We just it's just happened and we see it kind of all jumbled together. And so I don't think there's a, there's not like a clear logic to the character 
uh, at least yeah. with Aaron, that we can like hold on to. It's just like we're seeing him all chopped up, already affected by somebody yeah. whose life has been Fragmented, torn into pieces. Yeah. yeah, by the the reality of like being able to move through time all of a sudden. There is a nice reversal there, where at the beginning it's it's Abe's character who has figured out the time travel, and he's explaining it to Aaron, and yes. by extension to us as the audience. But then at the end, it's Abe who goes back into the fail safe and relives everything. But then it's we who are connected to Abe, uh, and we're trying to make sense of everything through Aaron, who is now controlling the the information, yeah. the flow of information, so to say. And you kind of jump from one character to another in terms of whose perspective you're connected to, which is kind of interesting, I guess. And it does show that maybe the initial, thematically at least, there's the initial promise of harnessing this power for your own good and then having yeah. it disintegrate, as you said, into this uh, force that we probably shouldn't have reckoned with, um, which you also see, I guess, with the way it is affecting their bodies. It's affecting them physically. Yeah. You know, the Aaron starts to get like, Bleeding ears. His ear and, is bleeding. Yeah. yeah, his ear is bleeding. The other character, uh, Granger, uh, was his name. He yeah. turns into a vegetable. Abe also faints towards the end. And they can seem to be riding. Which I, I saw someone notice or, or comment that the handwriting issue is because both Aaron and Abe, at the very beginning of the movie, they hold their hands briefly over the machine, which maybe might have sent their hand or like the, the nerve ends in their hands back in time just a few seconds which resulted in them not being in sync with their own hands anymore but i'm not sure if that's that's an interesting theory yeah, yeah. if there's a validity to it or if it holds up under uh, more careful scrutiny but i'm not sure if there's a strong thematic undercurrent beneath it all beyond the more obvious things that we've just talked about. But I, yeah. I'm, I'm also not sure if that was... Uh, I don't think that's Shane Garrett's intention to have. Uh, we also see it in um, Upstream Color. He doesn't seem like the kind of filmmaker who wants to have a movie with a strong statement at the end. But I, I'm not sure if you have any other uh, insights into that. I like the sort of banality of it, which mm -hmm. I guess you could construe as a kind of statement. I don't know if... if that's intentionally being constructed consciously by Shane Kareth. If he's like, oh, you know, grand discoveries are ultimately often sort of mundane and banal in, in how they come about or how they end up getting used, and I'm going to make a movie about that. I don't really think that's, uh -huh. you know, my impression is not that that's what he's setting out to do. But I do think if you compare this movie to a lot of movies about time travel or a grand mm -hmm. discovery this one does kind of say something different than i think a lot of those things do mm -hmm. where it in a sense kind of refuses to romanticize it and be like oh they discovered this big impressive thing and then they go off to use it for these grand heroic things it's no it's like no it's some guys in a garage and they were messing around and they stumbled across this thing and then their first impulse was to like trade on the stock market <laughs> and like and they maybe start messing around with like causality a little bit like there's the whole subplot with like them going to the part Aaron going to the party and the guy comes in with the gun and he stops him but even that they're just using for sort of like selfish ends like to come across as a Aaron's just like 
trying to portray himself as a hero. Mm -hmm. He mentions that the first time through, nobody got shot. So he's not even saving anybody. He's mm -hmm. just making it look like he saved somebody. Yeah, that, that to me is the, the part of the movie that I connect with the least or that I, I find like if there's one false note for me in the movie it's that whole sequence or that whole storyline for one it confused me because he's saving not his own girlfriend but Abe's girlfriend essentially right and I also feel like at that point they at first it is sort of implied that Abe uses his girlfriend to get the attention of her father who is this the Granger character yes. who has the the big money for to invest in their uh, little company but once he has the time travel it doesn't seem like it's not necessary anymore for them to impress the father figure for the money because they you know they can make the money on the stock market or yeah use the time travel to just uh, raise their own funds so i'm not sure what the purpose there was if it was just him wanting to feel like a hero but even even then it, it feels like a kind of reckless move even even for his his character as we see it established that you know i i can understand that you want to redo like a date or something or some other event but right. you know a, a scene where there's the potential to get shot and killed seems reckless because it's not the kind of time travel where you just push a button and then redo it's still you know there's real stakes involved in a situation like right. that and it seems hard to me that that's the, the situation that he chose to kind of repeat and play around with they have an argument essentially to that effect within the movie and that what you're saying is kind of the point mm -hmm. that abe brings up and and aaron has his counter arguments of like yeah i don't think this is going to happen because the guy doesn't fire the gun we can make sure the gun is unloaded like all these things mm -hmm. but i think to your earlier point because aaron's not really f that fleshed out as a character in terms of like us being able to understand what his motivations are or goals or desires some of that falls flat and we don't get the understanding of why why is he willing to take part in this seemingly riskier behavior besides just wanting to sort of test the boundaries of mm -hmm. this technology they've discovered and what it's yeah. capable of and i think that's ultimately the thing is abe's this one who wants to play it safe and is ultimately like no let's hold back he's trying to abe is trying to stop them from discovering the machine at the end he's kind of like we've gone too far mm -hmm. let's let's not mess with this yeah. and aaron's the one the entire time who's like let's kind of push it forward yeah. to the next thing to the next thing and he's the one building the, the bigger box at the end yeah he's also the one that breaks symmetry the first time when he brings his cell phone to the hotel yes yeah, yeah. so there are two kinds of sides of a coin there but i think you're right in that that's not mm -hmm. you know developed in a way that allows it to really emotionally resonate but to the sort of banality of it i think there is something to be said there and kind of depicting to what me seems like to some extent a more accurate representation of sometimes how these things happen like not to equate something like amazon the company with time travel mm -hmm. but often technological developments that end up having huge impact on our globe global industry or society or change completely change the way we live life in certain aspects don't come about as these big insane you know light bulb moments where mm -hmm. and then people go and use them for the greatest good immediately it, often it's more somebody who's tinkering around with something kind of ends up discovering something and then maybe it doesn't get used for that it actually is something else 
and then a decade later, you know, mm -hmm. where you buy books and where everything comes from is completely changed because, you know, the, they were just, they ended up pursue they just followed this path of profit or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't think there's a statement there within this movie, but it feels like mm -hmm. I like that it kind of takes something that is usually romanticized, which is yeah. time travel and just kind of sucks all the romance out of that. And it's just like, this is probably more what it would yeah. be like if it did happen. It, it, it does show that technological progress and just human progress in general is never divorced from ulterior interests and motives, I guess. But yeah, it doesn't feel like the kind of movie that's really trying to make a deep thematic or statement of meaning, which I guess is yeah. uh, a bit paradoxical to the podcast we're running, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it does lead to one, maybe lead into one question that I had that might be interesting to bring up uh, with this movie. And that's, do we have to be able to appreciate a movie on its own or just within its own confines or to what extent does a movie rely on additional or on its audience doing additional research to be appreciated if that makes yes. sense because yeah. this is a movie like if you watch it without any prior knowledge and you probably don't look up anything afterwards it doesn't feel it's probably a very unsatisfactory film but yeah. when yeah. you do take that active effort to treat it as a more almost as a starting point for further research and to dive into it more and to pick it apart and put it back together, then it becomes a more interesting piece of work. So it does seem to warrant a different type of relation that you would do with a with most other movies that you just watch, consume, and then you're kind of left satisfied. And you know, you might talk about it with others, but not in the sense that you still it feels like you're still in the movie as you're trying to make sense of it to some extent. Yes. This opens us up into kind of a larger discussion, which charts kind of a trajectory that I think I've had and maybe mm -hmm. a lot of people have had with movies over the last decade and a half, where I think once with the confluence of movies on the internet, message board, Reddit style discussions, YouTube, mm -hmm. Once those things were available surrounding a movie, I think it enabled a certain yeah. kind of movie to grow in prominence that maybe would not have been very accessible or interesting mm. to people before. I don't know if Primer would have had this kind of success in the 80s. You know, it's possible. And there's movies with like puzzly style plots that that predate, you know, the 2000s or the 90s, but not mm -hmm. nearly on the level, I think, that that we saw in like the 2000 aughts. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because you had a place to go. Like you could watch Primer and then go online and find the YouTube videos about it. The people who had made these really elaborate diagrams of the timelines and explaining everything. It didn't have a big long theatrical run. So most people were probably experiencing it, watching it online or watching, you know, watching it in a format where they could just watch it a couple times. And and that kind of went hand in hand with this popularity of movies that were puzzles or that had these twists or people, mm -hmm. you know, could try to put them all together. And I think that kind of movie is fun for a little while because it has a kind of illusion of of like meaningfulness, because as you put the pieces together, there's this sense of discovery. There's this sense of like, 
oh yeah, that you know, these things connect, it does all kind of fit together, and that feels meaningful. We as humans, we like puzzles. We like putting mm -hmm. together like a crossword or whatever, you know, a Sudoku mm -hmm. is just a set of numbers that like align. Yeah. And there's a satisfaction in that, even though it doesn't really hold any kind of meaning beyond putting the puzzle together. It's like the image already existed, the solution already existed. There's no inherent information within that that we're gaining that's new somehow, but we like it for some reason. Mm -hmm. I think that's really fun, but I think it's ultimately kind of a limited, it's kind of a limited space. Yeah. There's a reason I think it was kind of a trend for a little while, and we've sort of moved, like movies have kind of moved on from that, and they're not as popular anymore because... After you watch, you can only watch so many like mementos or primers or whatever. Yeah. Southland Tales was, I think, also a good one from that era. I haven't seen that one, but... I'm forgetting the name of the director, the director of Danny Darko. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was also a movie that relied heavily on its audience doing additional homework right. to understand what was going on. Yeah. And I think I think that kind of like runs its course. I mean, maybe there's some people who are into them for it, but I know like I was really into this movie at one time, mm -hmm. but now I kind of will I have a greater appreciation for a movie that doesn't necessarily fit together into a complete picture at the end or maybe is is more about what you experience as you watch the movie. And there is stuff that maybe unfolds as you watch it on repeat viewings but that's more like a deeper felt sense of meaning or like hmm. you're you're seeing new layers each time it's not like gathering all the clues like a detective yeah, yeah, yeah. putting together you know solving the mystery mm -hmm. it's more like uh, watching tenet now right yes. feel that, that yeah you have tenet is probably the closest <laughs> to primer in terms of how the time travel system works yes yeah the, where they have the reverse entropy in a sense that kind of right. makes characters loop around very different movie we talked about it already to a certain extent the popularity of this kind of film for mm -hmm. a little while frustrated me because i think people carried the way you engage with a movie like primer or memento into movies where you were never really meant to engage with them in that way mm. to begin with and people started treating certain films as like oh you watch this and you find the solution and yeah. there's clues and it kind of spawned this like blank 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 explained mm -hmm. video like primer might have been the original like primer <laughs> explained youtube videos were probably yeah. the original spark that fueled <laughs> this like every every movie with like even the slightest subtext now gets a you know, blank explained, ending explained video on YouTube. And to me, not to diss any of the, like, that's a very clickbaity title. It works. We work in the YouTube industry. I understand why those things mm -hmm. are that way sometimes. And I've made kind of explainy videos at times. But to me, there's a, I'm frustrated by that sometimes because I'm like, not every movie is a puzzle with clues to be explained. And that doesn't make the movie somehow better i don't know that maybe i'm on a rant now that has nothing mm -hmm. to do with primer but no i i definitely agree there's i'm not sure if the two developments are linked the kind of niche early 2000s era of cult movies that were these puzzle right. boxes and the handful of people who were very excited about them and spending all that times on forums or online uh, message boards to try and figure it out and and whether that's linked to the more general trend towards 
nitpicking every movie as if it's a box of facts that need to be put in the right, right order. I think Inception, for example, is a movie that suffered heavily from it because it does set you up with that kind of ambiguous ending, but I don't think in Inception is the kind of movie that needs to be figured out in the way that you want to figure out right. Primer. I think Inception, there's a clear emotional arc that gets resolved at the end, regardless of how you put the pieces together. But with Primer, there's, you know, it's it's a little bit apples and oranges, I think, or at least people have, you know, mistaken one for the other. But yeah, that's probably a bit too general of a discussion, I think, to yeah. talk about how we've fallen into the, we moved from one place to the to the now era of Shawshank Redemption explained <laughs> right, what really right. happened at the end. Let's yeah. figure it out. It's obvious that there's a lot of movies where this kind of explanation doesn't, isn't warranted uh, and not necessary. And so, yeah, I think in the end, it still remains a, it, it's a kind of niche genre and it only because even if you, when you think about it, like Primer is already the kind of movie that not a lot of people have seen. It's not, you know, it didn't get, as far as I can remember, a very widespread release. And, you know, it didn't explode the box office. And of the people who did see it, like the percentage that then was interested enough in it to really dig into it, that's probably even smaller. So I think there's an audience for a movie like this, but I think it's very small, but, you know, that's that's fine. I love that there's movies like this that do something else or do something different and give you something to talk about even almost 20 years after it's come out. To answer your original question about sort of the validity of this, you know, necessity of ex external engagement to really mm -hmm. engage with the movie, I think... I think that's fine. You know, it's fine to make a movie for that kind of space because it does exist now. There is something that can be fun about that. But yeah, I think it's limited. It's kind of it's kind of a limited way to look at things. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I ultimately think that I don't know, I've moved over time. I've become, you know, this was one of my favorite movies of all time at a certain point, And I was mm -hmm. I was really obsessed with it. But I think over time, I've become much more interested in the movies that that you still do kind of need to rewatch again and again to get everything out of them. Mm -hmm. But it's not in a putting together the pieces kind of the pieces of the plot kind of way. It's in a discovering deeper and deeper layers of, you know, emotional yeah. or like philosophical meaning that can exist in yeah. there because it's just such a rich and vibrant work, you know, that has mm -hmm. layers to be discovered. Tragedy might be a, a big word, but one thing that might be like a disadvantage when it comes to Primer and understanding the work of Shane Carruth is that he just wasn't able to make many films. Yeah. You know, if you look at Christopher Nolan, for example, if you just had following and uh, memento right our perception of who he is as a filmmaker and the kind of themes that he is interested in would have been much more limited than than we have now knowing his that he's right. had a long career so i think to that extent it's also one of the troubles with understanding primer or fully understanding primer and uh, upstream color which we're going to talk about is that we've just we, w we weren't able to get as much from shane carrot to really establish those longer term patterns and repeated themes and which which also make it more difficult to get a sense of where his focus is uh, yeah. in terms of meanings, yeah. in terms of themes, um, what his intentionalities may have been. And 
it lacks that kind of those additional layers that we would have gotten if he was allowed or was able to have a different career path. But yeah, I guess we'll get back to that in um, our bonus episode. Yeah, I think where we're kind of leaving off here, we'll transition nicely into the discussion we'll probably have around Upstream Color because that movie for me Mm -hmm. was definitely an interesting like point relative to this one in terms of I think Shane Karras going in a direction that I didn't really expect coming off of the back of Primer where he leaned more into that you know Terrence Malick sort of like Mm -hmm. it is still he leaned more into that experiential realm and away from this sense of technicality and intellectual naturalism and 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 so I think that's a fascinating development that Mm -hmm. we'll definitely get into so is there anything else about primer tom that we we haven't touched on that you think is worth Mm. mentioning it was an interesting movie to revisit just to also be transported back to that era of which was a transitional era i think in terms of independent filmmaking we were just i think it was just on the edge between where a lot of beginning or new filmmakers were still shooting on film to the era in which digital cameras became more widely available and which opened up a whole uh, set of different doors for new filmmakers. Um, in that sense, I feel like this may have been the one of the last of that, maybe the 90s kind of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of filmmaking and the do-it-yourself kind of filmmakers that were emerging from that era, Nolan, Tarantino, um, some others probably yeah. um, that I'm forgetting. It still is a, as I said in the beginning, a, a fascinating study on how to tell a compelling story with very little means and with very little talent, almost, I would say. Might not be the right way to put it. You know, he's he's obviously a very talented filmmaker, but you, it, it just shows you can get away with a lot of... You, you can cut a lot of corners as long as the, the essence of your story is solid and... Yeah, I think in that sense, it does. Uh, it still demonstrates a um, a potential for great storytelling with bare bones means, which I always find yeah. uh, very inspiring. This is a movie I always I always remember in the midst of discussions about you know the importance of theatrical viewing and and all these things is like there cinema going to a cinema. I think definitely makes for you know a more powerful there's a uniqueness to that experience that i appreciate and want to continue to exist but i often have these memories of my younger self discovering certain stories or certain films in much less than optimal environments in this case shot you know the bare necessities Hmm. you can have such impact from that kind of thing you know despite not having the trappings of of all of this and it's rare that something at this budget level kind of has this kind of magic Mm -hmm. i think that this movie has anyway i think it's really hard to do but it is possible to the film's credit i would say that it's a more it's made a more lasting impact than, for example, Nolan's following did. Special little movie. Special little movie, Primer. Mm-hmm. Go check it out again if you haven't already. 
Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can support it in two ways. One is by signing up for Patreon at patreon.com slash cinema of meaning, where you'll get access to our community, where we discuss the films in our private discord, and you'll get access to what we're going to be watching so you can watch along with us. You can find more information about that at the link in the description below. You can also support our podcast by signing up for Nebula and listening on Nebula, where you'll get access to episodes early and without ads, as well as the bonus episodes we record. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.